and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 3, a podcast for people who love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. In particular, I'll cover the role reversal in the story that is much like body switching episodes without the body switching, the subtle commentary that I think the show makes on a social question, dialogue lines that serve multiple purposes and are fun, and how external conflict forces character growth for Buffy. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Being Candy was written by Jane Espenson and directed by Michael Lang. We start with an opening conflict. This is the conflict that gets the audience interested and sometimes it relates to our main conflict, sometimes it does not. Here it does not. Buffy and Giles are in the graveyard. He is reading in a very serious tone a line about a tragic day in history and asks Buffy if she is ready. He then gives Buffy multiple choice answers, reading A and B, and before he can read C, Buffy jumps in, picks C, and says, we haven't had C in forever. Giles sighs and tells her this is the SATs, Buffy, not connect the dots. He urges her to take this seriously and concentrate. It's important for getting into college. This is the first of a number of comments on the SATs that lead me to believe that the writers might be engaging in a little subtle commentary because one of the arguments against the standardized testing that you're likely familiar with is that What students learn in prep classes is things almost exactly like what Buffy said. We haven't had C in forever. They are learning strategies for taking standardized tests, not necessarily learning more substance or learning how to think more clearly. And this gives a great advantage to students whose parents have the money for those test prep classes um, and also to students whose parents understand how that works, regardless of money. Getting back to the graveyard, though, Buffy spots a vampire behind, Giles warns him, and she leaps and rolls over a tombstone and stakes the vampire. She then says, oh, you know, I broke my number two pencil, we'll have to stop. But Giles says, see, all systems tend toward chaos. Buffy responds, I just know that us and the undead are the only people working this late. I love that chaos line, it foreshadows the episode. And this back and forth about the SATs begins a theme of the season about Buffy's impending graduation, adulthood, and what she'll do about college. And all this is done so quickly and in such a fun way. We cut from the line about the undead working late to City Hall. The mayor is talking to Mr. Trick about 
urgent, delicate matters. And Trick says uh, something like, not to worry, I know a beast who knows a guy. The mayor questions whether subcontracting this important task is a good way to go, but Trick tells him the guy has worked this town before. The mayor stresses how important this is. He has made deals to get where he is. The demon requires its tribute. And uh, the mayor is quite proud that what separates him from other politicians is that he keeps his campaign promises. He says this as he opens an antique armoire in his office inside are all sorts of creepy objects. He takes out a shrunken head from the cabinet and says something like, where, now where did I put my scotch? And we cut to the credits. At three minutes, 16 seconds in, we come back. Buffy is walking with her friends on the school grounds and talking about a dream of being chased by an improperly filled in answer bubble that is saying none of the above. Willow hopes this was not a prophecy dream. Uh, a nice bit of humor that gives us a little bit of exposition about Buffy. Oz offers to help her prepare, and Willow proudly says that Oz is the highest scoring person ever to fail to graduate. More humor that gives us some background about Oz. And Willow repeats this again when Cordelia and Xander join them, which also adds to that commentary about standardized tests because here we have Oz who scored really well, yet he did not graduate high school, not because he's not smart or doesn't take tests well, but because school just isn't really, it doesn't engage him enough. He doesn't persist with it. Xander comments that he hates standardized tests. They discriminate against the uninformed. Cordelia says she's looking forward to it because she does well on standardized tests. And this is a little more humor because when they all look at her, she says, what, I can't have layers. It also reflects those socioeconomic differences we saw commented on in the beginning of Homecoming. While it isn't stated that Cordelia's family can send her to prep classes. We know that her family has money and they probably can and Xander's family does not. I don't think the writers are doing anything heavy-handed here and it may be they were just having fun with it but I feel like this is a great example of being able to put in a minor theme, maybe something that you feel is important without hammering the reader over the head and where they might not even notice it, but as a writer, you get a chance to have a little bit of a say on an issue. Willow wants to help Buffy study as well, and Buffy says she will study, but not tonight. She needs to spend some quality mom time. Both she and Giles have been supervising Buffy 24-7, and Buffy says, it's like being in the real world house, only real. We then get to the story spark or inciting incident of the episode that usually comes about 10% through any story. And for Buffy's, the subplot of Buffy's relationship with her mom, that prior statement could serve as it. The fact that she feels like her mom and Giles are just watching her constantly. As to the demon plot, though, 
the story spark is very clear. Inside the school, Principal Snyder is handing all the students boxes of candy bars. Uh, Xander thanks him, but he says, no, it's banned candy. They need to sell it. The band needs uniforms. And that is exactly at four minutes, 41 seconds in to a roughly 44-minute episode. Buffy says she loves going all Willie Loman, but they're not in the band. And Snyder tells her, and if I'd handed you a trombone, that would be a problem, Summers. It's candy. Sell it. In the next scene, Joyce says, but you're not in the band. And Buffy says, and yet. Buffy angles for 40 bars. Joyce buys 20. A quick note on the scene-to-scene transitions here. They are just fantastic. We had earlier the undead working late line, which cuts to City Hall, where the undead are indeed working late. Here we have the not in the band in the Snyder scene carrying over into the Joyce scene. And this is a great thing to pay attention to, not just in fiction writing, but in any sort of writing. Lines from one paragraph to the next or one section to the next that can pick up on a word or phrase or theme from the previous section or paragraph and then transition to the next thought help the reader understand where you are going and follow you easily. And in fiction, it is such a good way to connect disparate parts of a story that initially the reader may feel uh, as if they are being bounced around from one scene to another. So it helps it become a coherent whole story even before the connections are obvious. Buffy now kind of pushes her luck having gotten Joyce to buy 20 bars. She wants to drive. She took all the courses and she watched the film strip with all the death and destruction. But Joyce says no. Buffy failed the written. They wouldn't even let her take the road test. Buffy protests that was a year ago. But Joyce tells her that she, Joyce, spends enough time not knowing where Buffy is. She doesn't want Buffy driving off to Chicago. Buffy reminds her mom that she could just take the bus. And Joyce gets angry. She says, I want you here. And we can see how distressed she is. Yes, logically, she knows Buffy could leave anytime. She could take the bus. She could walk. She could hitchhike. But the idea of driving is just a little too much for Joyce. And Buffy says, I'm here. See me here? And then she says, I got to go. Joyce is not happy about that. But Buffy tells her, you know Giles. It's a sleigh study double feature. Joyce complains that Giles is monopolizing her time and Buffy says, and does he ever say he's sorry? And we get another transition because in the next scene, Buffy says, ow, as Giles ties a blindfold around her eyes and he says, sorry. He hands her a basketball. She makes fun saying he ran out of training ideas. We also find out Giles bought 20 candy bars, so the other half of the amount Buffy has to sell another building block in this view of Giles as her substitute father. As far as the training goes, Giles tells her being blindfolded is to help her use her other senses so opponents can't sneak up on her. He will move away, she'll count to five, 
and she's supposed to try to hit him with the basketball. She turns in entirely the wrong direction, throws, and the basketball hits the wall. And just as Giles is saying something like, see, it's not that simple, is it? The basketball bounces off the wall and flies back and hits him on the side of the head. And he says, ow. Which is a nice bookend given that the scene started with Ow and now ends with Ow as Buffy runs out. She tells him she has to go home. She can't patrol. Her mom wants her there. Um, And Giles looks a little suspicious. Buffy goes to the mansion. It is night. Angel is in the courtyard in dim lighting doing Tai Chi, of course, with his shirt off. Buffy is impressed. She didn't know he could do that. He tells her he's feeling better, but he stumbles, and she helps him inside, his arm over her shoulders. Angel asks how she got away. It's so late, and she tells him it was easy. She started a fire in the prison laundry, got out in a garbage truck. He seems to take this seriously, and she tells him she was kidding, there's no garbage, smell me. But then when they're a bit too close, she backs away and sits a few feet away from him. Angel asks how Scott is, and Buffy responds, Scott? Oh, um, boyfriend Scott. Actually, he's not, oh, he's fine. Obviously thinking the better of telling him that she and Scott broke up. She again has brought him blood from the butcher and he thanks her but he doesn't drink it and then says, you're being careful, right? And Buffy says, with Scott? And he says, with slang. He tells her he worries about her. She worries about him too. He reassures her that he is getting stronger and it'll be better when he doesn't need her. And Buffy blinks and says, yeah. And we can see that this idea disturbs her. So there is real conflict going on within Buffy. She doesn't tell him about Scott suggesting she wants to keep that barrier between her and Angel, try to keep some distance, but then it upsets her when he talks about things being better when he doesn't need her. We're now approaching the one-quarter twist, as I call the first major plot turn, because normally it does come about 25% through a book or movie, sometimes a little later in a TV episode. Here though, it's about 10 minutes, uh, 45 seconds in. This twist should come from outside the protagonist and spin the story in a new direction. It also usually raises what is at stake in the story. Here, the one-quarter turn in the Buffy-Joyce-Giles subplot pretty well tracks our demon plot. Um, Buffy comes home. She tells Joyce, oh, you know, sorry, Giles kept her late training. He's all slay all the time. And Giles steps out from uh, the living room and tells Buffy, He also called Willow, and Buffy also lied to her. As Buffy stumbles through an answer, Joyce gives Giles some candy bar. He thanks her. Buffy lets Joyce think that she was at the bronze. And when Joyce wants to know what could be so important there, Buffy says bronze things, things of bronze. And she can't live like this. They're both treating her like a child. But Joyce argues that the last time Buffy made a decision on her own, Buffy split. 
Buffy responds that she took care of herself all summer, but Joyce doesn't buy that running away is an argument for treating Buffy more like an adult. Giles steps in and says, let's not freak out. And Buffy says, freak out? This is a great example of a conflict where no one is evil, everyone means well. Joyce is not trying to punish Buffy for running away. She is afraid of Buffy taking off, but probably more so, she's afraid she once again doesn't know what's going on in Buffy's life. And in fact, she doesn't. She doesn't know about Angel. Giles is likewise concerned. So we have this built-in tension between these characters who all care about each other but are at odds. We also have an external conflict that is taking hold, though as an audience, we don't necessarily grasp that yet. And it is Joyce giving Giles the candy, the change in language where Joyce is talking about you split, Buffy split, and Giles is saying don't freak out. Buffy goes upstairs, Joyce and Giles sit on the couch, and Joyce tells him that Buffy is driving her crazy. She wants to protect Buffy. And at least most other parents have some idea what to protect their children from. They eat more candy and agree that they both need to be careful. So I see this candy starting to take effect as this one quarter turn in the main plot. It comes from outside Buffy. It changes the entire direction of the demon tribute story because this will be what gets all the adults out of the way of the mayor's henchmen. And it does raise the stakes, as we will see later in the episode. Part of why I love this episode is that the plot and subplot are so nicely interconnected and we are not left wondering where exactly those plot turns are in the main plot as happened in some of our earlier episodes. The next scene makes the danger from the candy explicit. We're at 12 minutes 41 seconds in at a warehouse there is an assembly line of people packing boxes and Ethan Rain who we saw in Halloween and the Dark Age. Giles uh, old mate is supervising so this is the guy who worked this town before in Mr. Trick's words one of the assembly line workers is about to eat some candy and Ethan puts a hand on his shoulder and says you don't want to eat that so now as an audience we know the candy is the key and that it is very dangerous we cut to science lab Cordelia sighs she's sitting next to Buffy and says she heard there's a secret rule that if a teacher is 10 minutes late the students can leave but Buffy says Giles has study hall today and he's never late Cordelia goes on about how Giles is wound so tight. He made her pay a year's late fine on a philosophy book, and she really didn't want to return it at all because it was great for starting conversations with college boys. Of course, that was BX before Xander. 
So tons of exposition here in a couple lines, and it sets up the next moment because Xander and Willow are sitting next to each other at a lab table behind Buffy and Cordelia. They're joking about how easy it has been to sell the candy. Under the table, their feet, both in gym shoes, are pressed together. Willow is wearing red sneakers and white tights, and she looks so much like the willow we saw in the first season. I feel like this moment takes us back visually to the willow who was so smitten with Xander in the very first episode, Welcome to the Hellmouth, where she told Buffy about how she and Xander dated, but it didn't work out because I think she says he stole her Barbies. Cordelia swings around suddenly and says, I can't believe this. Willow and Xander jerk apart, shaking the table, but Cordelia is talking about Giles. She can't believe he's not there. She's bored and she wants him to be there to give her credit for it. Buffy looks worried. Out in the hallway, Snyder, eating a candy bar, says to a gray-haired woman teacher, Miss Barton, um, he says, the pinhead librarian didn't show up, and I don't want to do it. You do it. Miss Barton goes into the classroom. Snyder walks off, saying to himself, everybody expects me to do everything around here because I'm the principal. It's not fair. Snyder's character is so much fun in this episode. I like that the band candy structure gives us a chance to see a side of him we didn't know and get a sense maybe of who Snyder would like to be, which is so different than this principal who enforces all these rules and seems to have no sympathy for anybody. Miss Barton tells the students that they're all stuck there, but they should just pretend to read until old Commandant Snyder is far enough away and then they'll all leave. Xander says, does anyone else want to marry Miss Barton? And Cordelia responds, get in line. At 15 and a half minutes in, Buffy goes to Giles' apartment. His door is unlocked, and she cautiously pushes it open. But Giles is there. He is looking through his record albums. And so is Joyce. They tell Buffy that they have been having a summit meeting of sorts, and they are working out a coordinated schedule for her. Buffy is not too thrilled about that, she says. Sounds nice and structured. But Joyce tells her there's more work to do. Here's the keys. Why doesn't she take the car and Giles will drive Joyce home? And Buffy asks, what? Joyce repeats herself and Buffy says, you don't have to tell me twice. Well, actually you did, but bye. She grabs the keys, runs out, and Joyce says, do you think she noticed anything? Giles lights a cigarette. Joyce takes out a bottle of whiskey. We cut to Buffy driving Joyce's SUV with Willow. She takes turns very fast, the tires squeal, and Willow looks really nervous and says, do you know that you have the parking brake on? Buffy says, uh-huh, and takes it off. Willow questions whether they should really go to the bronze with the SATs tomorrow, but Buffy says they can study at the bronze. Joyce is sitting cross-legged on the floor. Giles is lying on his back, on his rug. They share cigarettes. She wants to know how come they call him Ripper, and he says, wouldn't you like to know? There is 60s music playing in the background. Um, I looked it up. It is Tales of Brave Ulysses by Cream. 
And I just love this for a very personal reason. When I was growing up, I had two brothers who were quite a bit older than me. Um, One was in a rock band. The other just loves music. And he had this huge collection of vinyl record albums. He was very careful with them. And he had the latest stereo equipment. And sometimes I was allowed to play the actual vinyl album. And I just remember going in his room I had to be super careful but I could listen to all these albums when I got home from school and before he got home from work so it just brought me back to that time they decide Giles and Joyce that they're going to go out and have some fun Giles is wearing jeans and a white t-shirt and he makes his hair spikier before they leave So there isn't any DVD commentary for this episode, but there are some interesting things in one of my favorite books of essays about Buffy. It is called Fighting the Forces, What's at Stake in Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And it includes an essay called My Boyfriend's in the Band by Asrenee Deschert, D-E-C-H-E-R-T. It is about the use of music in Buffy as part of the storytelling. And here is what she says about this scene. But Giles is soon revealed to be more than the stereotypical stodgy librarian addicted to Mozart. Rather, he is a former British punk with a sizable collection of classic rock vinyl. In band candy, the awakened punk, clad in jeans, t-shirt, and Doc Martens, gone is the tweed, lies on the floor of his apartment, smoking and listening to Cream's Tales of Brave Ulysses. This is the best bit, he tells Joyce, as Eric Clapton's solo starts. Man, I've got to get a band together. Joyce suggests going to the bronze, and we cut to the bronze where Oz's band is playing. It is almost all adults dancing, chugging beers, and yelling out to the musicians. Buffy and Willow enter and are shocked by the scene. Miss Barton comes by and jokes about Willow's name being a tree and asks little tree, are there any nachos here? Snyder walks up, stands in between Willow and Buffy, puts an arm around each and says, call me Snyder, just the last name like Barbarino a reference to the show Welcome Back, Cotter. We are now reaching the midpoint of the episode where typically we see either a major commitment by the protagonist or the protagonist suffers a serious reversal. Before we get to that, let's take a quick break. We have some listener comments So Steve commented on last Monday's episode, Homecoming. He said he really enjoyed the episode, especially Buffy and Cordelia together, but he thought everyone was acting out of character. Mainly, he did not buy Willow risking her relationship with Oz, but also he thought Cordelia seemed far too mean, more like season one Cordelia. My take on this, I I just think there is that part of Willow that always wanted Xander and that moment in the formal clothes really tapped into that and I think she just could not help herself. I remember as a viewer when it first aired feeling kind of angry at the show or at Xander or both because for so long this is what Willow wanted and I wanted them together because it's what Willow wanted. 
And then Willow gets to be with Xander, but in this really complicated way. As far as Cordelia goes, I had not really thought about that, and it does seem a little more like season one Cordelia. My headcanon for this, and I think there is evidence in the show, is that Cordelia has always felt this kind of mixed admiration and rivalry with Buffy because in season two, she made that comment about, well, you may be great with monsters and fighting evil, but when it comes to dating, I'm the slayer. And this is in the beginning of Homecoming, that same conflict coming back here her territory is I'm homecoming queen and she feels like Buffy's infringing on that it's almost like well Buffy wants to be all the things that's why I feel Cordelia was acting in character but I can definitely see the point that she she did seem a little more season one like also a comment from Twitter from at Roberta Lip she talked about Anne and said this episode falls weirdly flat and I don't think you'll find a lot of objection about that second this is also my favorite season meaning season three I wasn't sure how I would like your format I'm not a fiction writer however it's a really fun way to rewatch Buffy in my head while you walk me through it And she goes on to say, the kicker is, I am a writer and a storyteller, and I'm getting a lot out of what you point out, because these are not tips I would have pursued. The repetition through listening has it sink in. Thank you. I'm I'm so glad that it is a compelling podcast, including for people who aren't necessarily writing fiction or planning to. Roberta Lip also is a podcaster. She has a podcast about Mad Men, which she blogged about for years, and I tuned into it and really enjoy it. I love the in-depth discussions of the characters. It's called They Coined It. If you would like to comment on the show, you can email me, Lisa at lisalilly.com that's l-i-s-a-l-i-l-l-y or tweet me at lisa amazon marie lily hashtag buffy story if you would like to follow along with the story plot points you can download free story structure worksheets at the link in the show notes. You can also find those worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com forward slash your novel. At about 21 minutes, 13 seconds in, we start with a reversal, which really is more of a doubling down on this scene. Willow is worried about the adults having heart attacks. Buffy says maybe there's a doctor here. And at that moment, a somewhat heavy guy with his shirt off and a tie on dives off the stage. And Willow says, I think that is my doctor, but that usually he's a little less shirtless. And she says, they're acting like a bunch of, and Buffy says, they're acting like a bunch of us. But Willow protests, we don't act like this. I think that we see a little bit of character growth here for Buffy, forced by this external conflict because she is forced to see through her mother's and Giles' eyes what the concerns might be about people acting at any age irresponsibly. 
I see the whole scene as a midpoint reversal because clearly this danger to Sunnydale, whatever danger the candy poses, has become serious. It has spread to all the adults. We are not talking about just Giles and Joyce saying things like split and freak out. We're seeing um, this doctor diving off the stage. We're about to see a fight break out. But for now, we cut to the warehouse. Ethan and Mr. Trick are talking, and Mr. Trick loves this country. He says, you make a good product, and the people will come to you. Of course, a lot of them are going to die. That's the other reason I love this country. He then snaps one of the worker's neck for eating some of the candy. Ethan asks how he knew the guy ate it, and Trick says he didn't know, but now he knows that no one else will. And they agree it's almost feeding time. Back at the bronze, Buffy says something is definitely changing the adults, and Oz observes teenagers. That's a sobering mirror to look into. Snyder walks by and says to Oz, you've got great hair. About 22 minutes in, a bunch of middle-aged guys start singing a cappella on the stage, and then that fight I mentioned breaks out between two guys in the crowd. Buffy now makes something of a commitment we're 22 minutes 49 seconds in and she says they better figure out what's going on this has hellmouth fingerprints all over it so in this episode it might be a bit less of a commitment and more of a realization she is putting things together but she heads outside with her friends and Snyder tags along saying something like, you guys aren't trying to ditch me, are you? In a quick separate scene, we see two cars about to drag race driven by middle-aged men and um, they are taking up both lanes of traffic. So one is going the wrong way. In the SUV, Oz is advocating for finding Giles because he'll know what to do. And he thinks that even if Giles is now 16, he's probably a pretty together guy. Buffy, though, tells him Giles at 16, less together guy, more bad magic, hates the world, ticking time bomb guy. This is an example of how you can use a newer character to bring in exposition in a natural way. And here, that's Oz, because Oz didn't know all of them during the Dark Age, so he doesn't know about Giles' dark past. For new viewers, this quickly explains why Giles is so different when he reverts to his teenage self. And because they are so good at dialogue and conflict in Buffy, we get this information in the context of conflict as our characters try to figure out what to do. And it is also done so quickly and in a fun way in just one line that Buffy says to Oz. Oz now thinks that, given what Buffy said, her mother is in a lot of trouble. But we cut to Joyce and Giles, another nice transition, and he has his arm around her shoulders. They are strolling past an outdoor coffee shop. She's wearing a short skirt. She looks a little hippie-like with her long coat. He has that whole bad boy look. And Joyce is telling him she feels special, like she's just waking up. As if getting married, having a kid was just a dream, and now things are back how they're supposed to be. And this is one of those times when Buffy hits a universal theme. Whether people get married or have kids or not, most of us as adults at some point experience that feeling of, how did I get here? 
because life is not smooth. It doesn't always go the way we expect. Quite often we're doing something very different than what we imagined or we have had to take on responsibilities and feel that we are somehow different than who we were when we were younger. And Joyce gets all of that in that one line. She sees a vest she likes in a clothing store window on a mannequin. Giles wants to know if she fancies it, and she says yes, it's very Juice Newton, but the store is closed. Giles puts out his cigarette, breaks the window with a garbage can, and gives her the vest and takes the hat for himself. And Joyce giggles, he was so brave. A Sunnydale cop appears on the scene and immediately pulls a gun. We switch to Snyder in the SUV. He wants to go do donuts in the football field. Buffy, though, is on a collision course with one of the drag racers, and there is a crash. And we cut to commercial. We return to Giles, who is saying, ooh, copper's got a gun, and he easily disarms the cop. Joyce says he is so cool, like Burt Reynolds. He grabs her, she takes out her gum, and they kiss on the hood of the Sunnydale patrol car. We fade to Buffy in the aftermath of that crash. The driver gets out and just runs away. Everyone is okay, but there is chaos all around. Buffy comments that there are no grown-ups, no one's protecting the houses, but there are also no vampires. And she says, soup's on, but no one's grabbing a spoon. They all realize that, in Oz's words, something is happening somewhere that's else. This is more of that conflict forcing Buffy to think about what happens when grown-ups don't pay attention and is a flip from when her greatest desire was that Joyce and Giles would not pay attention to what she was doing. Snyder runs after a guy who steals his candy. He comes back complaining about it and Buffy connects the adult's behavior to the candy and says it must be cursed. Snyder looks shocked and worried. And this answers a question that I had about whether he was in on this whole scheme or was just a puppet being manipulated by the mayor or the mayor's henchmen. Buffy threatens Snyder and wants to know where the candy came from. He says it was through the school board, a rough crowd. All he knows is he was supposed to make sure it was sold, and he knows where the source is, the warehouse. Buffy sends Willow and Oz to research and goes to the source with Snyder. At the warehouse, a crowd has gathered and workers are throwing boxes of candy to them. Buffy marches toward the warehouse but stops when she sees Giles and Joyce standing to one side making out. So now our role reversal becomes explicit. Buffy pulls them apart. Giles tells her to leave them alone. They're busy. Uh, But Buffy starts asking her mom what's going on, and then she notices, uh, I said vest, I think it's a coat, and she says, where did you get that coat? Joyce wants more candy. Buffy tells her she doesn't need any more candy. 
But Joyce says, I can have more if I want. And Buffy gets to slay, and Joyce can't stop her. So she says, screw you, I want candy, and get off my back. Giles takes Joyce by the hand. He's going to get her some more candy, trying to shock them out of it. Buffy says, Mom, look at your car. She points out this giant dent. And Joyce says, oh my god, what was I thinking when I bought the geek machine? And Giles laughs. Buffy stamps out his cigarette when he tells her to sod off. She fights her way into the warehouse, and though she has told them to go home, Giles and Joyce follow her, as does Snyder. Inside the warehouse, Buffy sees a guy talking on the phone from behind. It's Ethan, and he is saying that uh, to whoever is on the other end that they can go at any time. And Buffy says his name. He turns around and says into the phone, you might want to hurry, and then runs. Buffy and Giles chase him through the warehouse, leaping over a conveyor belt, and we switch to the library. Cordelia is saying that at first it was kind of fun. Her parents were in a good mood, not like parents. But then her mom started borrowing her clothes, and she says there should be an age limit on Lycra pants. Xander says he doesn't get it. The candy's supposed to make you all immature, but I don't feel any different. Never mind. He touches Willow's hand at that moment. There is so much chemistry, and he backs away and goes to the second level of the library with Oz. So this, too, to me, underscores that idea that the Willow-Xander attraction here is that callback to that earlier time in their lives. Cordelia says to Willow, you want to swap? And Willow says, what? But Cordelia doesn't mean boyfriends. She means the book. Hers is really hard to read. At 31 minutes in, we are back to the warehouse. Giles is breathing hard from chasing Ethan. And Buffy tells him that's what smoking will do to you. Sounding more and more like a grown-up. And she tells him to be quiet, and she listens and hears Ethan in a large cabinet, though we don't hear anything. So she is using some of those skills that Giles was emphasizing in the beginning of the episode with the training. Giles kicks in this wood cabinet and pulls Ethan out. We switch to Joyce and Snyder. They are sitting near the entrance, still eating candy. He leans close to her and asks if she and Giles are going steady. Joyce rolls her eyes and moves away. We are now at the next major plot turn uh, that I think of as the three-quarter turn because it comes about 75% through most stories and it takes the plot in yet another new direction but it should grow from that midpoint rather than being this new outside force. Buffy asks Ethan what's going on. Giles keeps interrupting to say hit him. Ethan tells her it's Mr. Trick. Ethan is just subcontracting. Giles says he's lying and tells Buffy you're my slayer. Go knock his teeth down is and Buffy tells Giles to shut up. Ethan claims he doesn't remember what demon the tribute is for, but after Buffy punches him and Giles says yes, he gives the demon's name and explains that the candy is not just a diversion. 
that the tribute is so big that people would never let the vampires take it. So the adults had to be so out of it that when the candy wore off, they would blame themselves. Buffy wants to know what the tribute is, and the scene cuts to the hospital. Vampires are going in, and they grab the newborns from the nursery. All of this did grow from the midpoint where the candy took hold, that reversal where the candy took hold, hit all the adults so that they were just out drinking, goofing around, drag racing, having fun, and ignoring all of their responsibilities. And also Buffy figuring it out comes from her realization that this related to the Hellmouth and deciding she had to go figure it out. Ethan, though, does not know what the tribute is. So in the next scene, Buffy is on the phone with Willow, and as they are talking about the demon and the tribute, Ethan grabs a tire iron to sneak up on Buffy from behind. Giles pulls a gun on him, the gun he took from the cop. Buffy turns around, stops all of it, makes Giles give her the gun, which he reluctantly hands over. Uh, And Willow on the phone tells Buffy that the tribute is every 30 years, it's a ritual feeding, and it's babies. Buffy says they need to tie up Ethan because they have to go to the hospital. And Joyce sheepishly brings out a pair of handcuffs. Buffy says, never tell me. At the hospital, the babies are gone. All the adults are confused. Giles remembers a poem about Laconis, the demon, something about beneath the city in the filth, and they figure out that the tribute is taking place in the sewers. When Snyder doesn't want to go there, Giles taunts him about being afraid of a little demon, and Buffy tells them all to stop it. She needs them to be grown-ups. Children are going to die otherwise echoing Joyce's fears about Buffy dying that we heard in previous episodes and were alluded to here when she talked with Giles. We switch to the sewers. Uh, There are vampires in robes chanting in Latin. There are torches lit. The babies are uh, in a sort of cart all together and they're crying. Mr. Trick is impatient. He says, come on, big guy, they're not getting any fresher. The mayor is there too, a little bit off to the side. He's making calls about the Public Works Committee because he's noticed they need some sewer maintenance and repair. He has concerns about exposed pipes and ventilation. And this is a nice character moment for the mayor because as we started to see in the last episode and we'll see throughout, hopefully not too much of a spoiler, even as he does evil things, he is very concerned with keeping the city running well. Buffy comes in, the mayor takes off. It's not clear if she saw him or if she did, she knew who he was. She fights the vampires. Giles and Joyce wheel the babies away. We are now at our climax. This is where our opposing forces have their final clash and we resolve the conflict one way or another. At 39 minutes, 30 seconds in, there is a roaring sound. The demon arises. It comes in from the side through a tunnel. It's another giant snake demon, uh, somewhat like the one that we saw in Reptile Boy. And it grabs the nearest vampire and withdraws temporarily. 
Trick tells Buffy that usually he likes others to do his fighting for him, but I just got to see what you got. Buffy says to tell her when it hurts, but Giles now leaps in instead to fight Trick. Trick fairly easily throws him aside and right into the path where the demon came out before. He barely scrambles away. The demon comes out again. Buffy grabs one of those gas pipes, lights it on fire with a torch, and uses it to set the demon on fire. I love this because it shows that the mayor's phone call, which really looked just like some characterization of the mayor, some humor of him being in this dark ritual and being concerned about public works, but it also set the stage for what Buffy does here, the uh, leaking gas, the danger. Using lines like that for multiple purposes is part of what makes this episode move so quickly because nothing is wasted and it makes it feel very uh, intense, though it is a fun episode, and very tightly structured, and I love that. So now uh, the demon has been defeated. We are at the falling action part of the story where we tie up loose ends. And Mr. Trick says, you and me, girl, there's hard times ahead and runs off. And Buffy says, they never just leave. Always got to say something. Joyce tells her uh, or asks, can they go home now? Buffy mentions the SATs tomorrow, and Joyce tells her to blow them off. She'll write Buffy a note. But Buffy says no, she'll take them. So we get that confirmation of Buffy's growth here. In the beginning, Giles chided her for not taking the SATs seriously. And certainly she would have a good reason for not taking them. But no, she is going to handle that task, that responsibility now. We also get a tying up of loose ends with the mayor and Mr. Trick. Mr. Trick is sitting in the chair in front of the mayor's desk. The mayor is standing near him, kind of looming over him and says, and your friend? Trick says he paid him. The man did his job. No reason to burn that bridge. And he also asks, where's the downside? The way he sees it, the mayor's got one less demon to pay tribute to. Trick did the mayor a favor. And the mayor smiles and says, I guess you did. He leans in close and puts his hands on Trick's shoulder and says, in the future, I'd be very careful how many favors you do for me. The next day at school, Principal Snyder comes upon Willow, Oz, Xander, and Cordelia in the hall by the lockers. Xander says, hey, Snyder, and immediately Snyder responds, that's Principal Snyder. And he tells them it looks like they have too much time on their hands and points them to vandalism of the lockers, which is that someone painted kiss rocks across them. And they are just the volunteers he needs to clean it up. This is another sort of bookend because while he didn't use the word volunteer when he was handing out band candy, it was the same idea. Supposedly, they were volunteering to do something that he was making them do. 
We switch to Buffy. She and Giles are walking out of the school. Buffy tells Giles it was too much. The things she thought she understood were gone, and she ends, I just felt so alone. Giles asks, was that the math or the verbal? And she says mostly the math. He reassures her that if she scored low, she can take it again, but Buffy is not thrilled with that and says, more SATs? And points out that she could die before she could apply to college. Giles says, you very possibly might not. And Buffy responds, well, let's just keep hope alive. So this is the last of our little bit of commentary on the SATs, which Buffy is so skilled at slaying. She killed this demon last night. But her future in terms of college depends on filling in test bubbles correctly. Joyce has come to pick up Buffy and drive her home. She awkwardly says hi to Giles, who looks instead at the car and comments that it appears it had an adventure. Joyce tells him that Buffy assured her it happened battling evil, so I'm letting her pay for it on the installment plan. Side note, this seems really unfair to me. This was really the drag racer's fault, though I suppose we saw plenty of evidence that Buffy was not paying attention and not driving well, but that seems a little harsh. And Buffy says, oh, hey, the way things were going, be glad that's the worst that happened. At least I got to the two of you before you actually did something. And she gets in the car. Joyce, looking at the ground, says to Giles, right. And Giles says, indeed. And Joyce says, yes. And we cut to the credits. As I mentioned, no DVD commentary. I do have um, one other comment from Fighting the Forces, but it belongs in spoilers. Before we go there, my thoughts on this episode, I just love it. It is so much fun. Often, I'm not as much of a fan of the one-off episodes that don't move the season-long story arc very much, but this one I both enjoy and I see as moving that arc in some subtle ways. For one thing, it resolves much of the Joyce and Buffy conflict. At least that's my memory, so we will see if I'm correct on that. It adds to and builds on this idea of Giles as a substitute father. We have Joyce comments on Buffy playing them against each other. She buys 20 candy bars. He buys the other 20 candy bars. And of course, they get together in this episode. The mayor is further revealed as a major force in the town and a major danger. And we also learn that Snyder, as uh, awful as he can be, isn't a part of the mayor's plans. That is it, except for spoilers and foreshadowing. If you are not sticking around for that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will come back for Revelations next Monday. That episode I also think of as the one with Gwendolyn Post. And we are back for foreshadowing. That scene when Giles blindfolds Buffy made me think of season five when the Watcher Council will come to Sunnydale and test Buffy. And that key test where she feels she failed and she does fail partly because they set her up to do it, they make her fight blindfolded. 
It's interesting that this foreshadows that Watcher's test because this episode also foreshadows the Watcher's test in this season in Helpless where Quentin comes to town from the Watcher's Council and we find out there is this ritual when a Slayer turns 18, the Cruciamentum, where she is made physically helpless and thrown into an extremely dangerous situation. And that is where Giles ends up getting fired because he is too much of a father figure for Buffy, which is what we are seeing so much in this episode, including that hooking up with Joyce. The scene with Joyce when they're listening to the Cream song after Joyce dies, in forever we will see Giles on the day of the funeral sitting with a glass of whiskey and listening to that song it is such a quick moment and nothing is said about it but we see him grieve her and remember her in that way that is something I noticed probably the second time through when I watched the series on the DVDs it is also mentioned in an essay another essay in fighting the forces which talks about why don't Joyce and Giles get together or why don't they stay together this is the only time that they sleep together and it's something that as a fan I kind of wanted them to be together and this essay addresses why that doesn't happen and I think it's a really good take on it the essay is darkness falls on the endless summer by Catherine Seaman s-i-e-m-a-n-n in this essay talks both about why she thinks the Giles Joyce relationship is not forwarded and about Giles' role as a father figure. And here's what she says. Buffy resists the typical television outcome. Under the influence of a magic spell, Giles and Joyce have a fling, but it is never repeated because pairing them romantically would neatly recreate the nuclear family in Buffy's life. When the nature of Giles' fatherly feelings toward Buffy is acknowledged, however, he loses his power. At the end of the third season's Helpless, he is relieved of his duties as Watcher because he has developed a father's love for his charge and can no longer exercise the necessary objectivity. In the fourth season, we see him suffering from empty nest syndrome as Buffy's freshman year of college leaves her increasingly independent of him. He experiences something of a midlife crisis that has him performing acoustic rock at a local coffee house. So I take a tiny exception to the end of that quote because I don't necessarily see Giles performing at the coffee house as a midlife crisis because he's so good. In the episode where Buffy starts hearing everyone's thoughts later in season three, there is a wonderful moment when she learns that Joyce and Giles slept together. First when she hears her mother's thoughts and confronts her and then later when she taunts Giles with it. And we will see it yet again 
in season four, in the actual body switching episode, she shares some of Joyce's thoughts about it with Giles to prove that she is, in fact, Buffy, though she is appearing in Faith's body. And I'm so tempted to go through the lines now, but I will save them for the actual episode. Finally, one more minor thing. Buffy never will learn to drive in the series. And she tells Riley in season four that Buffy and driving don't mix. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you will return next week for Revelations. If this episode did not move the season arc enough for you, next episode most definitely will. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.